Hello, and you are listening to Eco Justice Radio, a project of SoCal 350 Climate Action. Our show presents environmental and climate stories from a social justice frame featuring voices not necessarily heard on traditional, mainstream, or even public media outlets. I am Jessica Aldridge, and on today's show, Permaculture Lessons from Fire, Restoring Paradise. Host Carrie Kim interviews Matthew Trum of Tree Top Permaculture, discussing the lessons learned during the campfire which burned through the town of Paradise, California in November 2018. Matthew Trum is a permaculture educator, designer, and consultant from Oroville, California in Butte County. Since Matthew commenced his land-based studies in 2011, he has pioneered countless permaculture projects, including the nonprofit Camp Fire Restoration Project and nurturing a local food movement all under the umbrella of treetop permaculture. The Camp Fire Restoration Project, a nonprofit, helps restore the areas that were devastated by wildfire. They created the first ecosystem restoration camp in the United States and the first mobile permaculture-based disaster response camp model in the world. Given current wildfires burning now in Washington, Oregon, and throughout California, and the accelerating impacts of climate change, it is critically important to reestablish our connection to the forest as an essential ecosystem and to restore its ecological function using regenerative principles. Matthew discusses permaculture-based restoration efforts he and the local community engaged in Paradise, indigenous perspectives on the effectiveness of cool burns, remediating toxicity post-fires, and establishing the Campfire Restoration Project as the premier mobile ecosystem restoration camp in the world modeled upon disaster recovery. Inspired by ecologist and filmmaker John Liu, who we interviewed earlier this year on Eco Justice Radio, so be sure to check that out, Matthew shows us how they overcame the massive wildfire disaster and are working to restore paradise. Thank you for tuning in to Permaculture Lessons from Fire, Restoring Paradise. At the time of this recording, due to COVID-19, we are all practicing physical distancing and calling in from our respective homes, so unfortunately, we are still not in our normal KPFK Los Angeles studio. Please bear with us on any sound quality issues. It is my honor to welcome our special guest joining us via Zoom, Matthew Trum, designer and educator from Treetop Permaculture. Welcome to EcoJustice Radio. Aloha. Thank you for tuning in. My name is Carrie Kim, and we're here with permaculture educator and designer, composting expert and consultant, Matthew Trum of Treetop Permaculture and also the Campfire Restoration Project. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Matthew. Thank you, Carrie. Pleasure to be here. I, you know, I wanted to say, first of all, that our hearts and prayers go out to all the beings navigating the fires now burning in California, Oregon, and Washington, and to the first responders and their families. We um, are so grateful to have you on the show today, Matthew, because you have gone through your own personal lessons from fire, and your insights and practices around permaculture, restoration, and regeneration are invaluable for us now. Well, you know, I wanted to, to first kind of discuss how you first, how you ended up in the world of permaculture in the first place. You know, you've had an incredible tra trajectory from being a DJ and rapper in the East Bay um, to your life now. You've launched numerous permaculture and food projects and built networks as an educator and a permaculture practitioner and 
I would say, visionary community activist. And you've studied with some of the most foremost teachers of permaculture and soil regeneration, including Penny Livingston and Elaine Ingham. I wanted to start a little bit at the beginning of how would you define permaculture? So the big, the really important thing to understand about permaculture is that it is a design system. It's not a technique. A lot of people think of it as another kind of gardening technique, like, you know, it has the culture. So you think of aquaculture, Hugo culture. Uh, we think about biodynamics. We think about these different technique-based systems. Uh, but permaculture is, it's allowing you to use any technique that is appropriate for your specific situation. So you have a design system that then when you get into the techniques of it all, you can actually choose from anything. So it's so powerful because it essentially looks at an energy order in every system. We're looking at a, a site. We're looking at what energies are affecting a site. What energies are coming in? Where's the wind coming from? Where are the sun angles? Where's the frost pockets? Where is a good view or a bad view? Maybe something that you want to block. So we see all the energies that are on a site, you know, where you're located, what's the climate. And then we're also looking at what are your lifestyle? What's your lifestyle like? Do you have physical, the physical abilities to be out there, you know, doing this work, all those things go into account. And then we come up and we pull from all the techniques of the world, primarily nature as our number one guide. So it's biomimicry. We're looking at nature as our ultimate teacher in everything we do. So we're asking, we're looking at what, why is that forest? Why does it, it doesn't have to be watered. It doesn't have to be fertilized. It doesn't have to, it doesn't need any inputs from us, but it still thrives and it, you know, it goes on. So we're trying to understand those mechanics and then work with nature. We're going with these patterns, these, you know, patterns that have been here from the very beginning. You know, we can't change those things. Mm -hmm. They're constants in the universe. And we're working with those patterns of nature to design systems. I like to think of it as human ecosystems in mm -hmm. a way because we're, we're part of it. And it's a positive, you know, positive system where we see human beings as a benefit rather than a negative element right. in the system. Being active stewards and supplying our own needs also regenerates the world that we're touching around us. How you launched into permaculture, if you could speak about that, the book that kind of sparked it all for you, The mm -hmm. One Straw Revolution, and what, what was it about that book? I, I forget the author's name, you'll remember. Yeah, Masabana Fukioa. And I might be saying that a little bit wrong. Fukuoka. Fukuoka, there you go, yeah. see? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, a buddy of mine who's a naturalist and uh, you know, all these things I didn't really quite understand, you know, and at the time I looked at nature as like many people had as something that's this wild thing out there, you know, and it's its own thing and we've got our own thing going over here and you don't think about mixing gardening with nature so much. And uh, Fukuoka, he said, well, what if you don't do this or you don't do that? What if we look at a place that has greenery all year long and, you know, we think 
that must be it's growing herbaceous plants, annual plants there mm-hmm. all year round. So we're going to plant there, right? Like instead of saying, I want my garden here, you're right. looking at nature saying, hey, this is where you, nature is telling you to put a garden. And why does, why do the plants in nature not need to be trellised or to be pruned and all these other things? So it's like, what if we don't do this? If we don't do that? And it's also a lot about timing. And so paying attention to the seasons of nature and when to do things. So that, that section there, was, I mentioned that sort of struck me because here it was, it was early summer and it was already getting dry. And I found a spot up in my property in Berry Creek that had a patch of green grass. And I, I threw out some kale and some like charred seeds out there. And I've kind of forgot about it actually. And then I, I was going through the garden one day, a couple months later, and there was charred and kale plants up to my hips. <laughs> and I had never, I had never touched them. Right. And then, the, so this little patch, and I did have to give it a little water, like the, in the end of the summer right. and stuff, uh-huh. but this patch persisted for two years, you know, and it laid seed and it regenerated and it cut it back. And so that was like my first clue in to this natural gardening world, which then I found the word, or I heard, I heard about food forests mm-hmm. through my research. And I, wrote, I was like, food forest, that's super cool. That sounds really amazing you know, mimicking a forest ecology, but with also productive species, mm-hmm. you know, and that concept started to blow my mind. And this word permaculture started coming up over and over again. And I found uh, a gentleman, Jeff Lawton, who's, who's my teacher and is an incredible um, leader in permaculture and just has a really dynamic way to explain it, has, you know, had great video. And so I started watching a lot of Jeff Lawton stuff and really you know caught on and i knew that this is the holy grail like this is what we've been missing right here and for me you asked why like coming from being a dj in the bay area like how did i have this drastic change in my life you know it i don't know i just knew when i lived out there and you know i was into art and you know i was into music and everything and i was doing these things but i was i got in a lot of trouble when i was young like when I was really young out there and I was always sort of restless and I felt anxiety, you know, out there, a a lot of anxiety and, you know, like paying rent and just, you know, being always uh, paycheck to paycheck and really struggling. I mean, I was homeless for a short period of time when I was in the Bay area. Um, And then, you know, the opportunity to come out this way, I used to think, Oh man, it's like, you know, Countryville out there. I don't want to, you know, I'm not, there's nothing going on. There's no shows, you know, out there. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I was like, eh, not really. But we always, my family had land in Berry Creek since I was five years old. That was this, we got this really good deal on this piece of land because this guy uh, got busted growing weed up there. And uh, (laughs) we got this great deal on this piece of land. It was raw land. Mm -hmm. And I came up there as a kid. And, and anyways, after a bad relationship, I said, I'm going to go up, up this way. And, uh, and honestly, it was more like at the time I was, I was sort of into like the prepper world. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it was more of like the conspiracy theories, you know, oh, yeah. of, of, that, you know, that are going on in the world and, and all this. And I just knew I just wanted to get away and uh, ended up there. And um, 
and I lived there for a list for <laughs> your survival. Yeah, as like as great. like, yeah, I'm gonna put some food in a you know, in a shipping container and Have bury your it. <laughs> in your bunker, right? On your yeah, <laughs> bunker. Yeah. So that's that's sort of how and then but then I was up there and I'm like, well, I gotta grow my own food, right? This is part of the self-sufficiency, you know. And so I started to dabble and I was like real, you know, pretty traditional about the way I did things. But I never used chemicals. I was always into organic. I just kind of knew that was right. And and I did, I failed miserably, you know, the first year. I had never grown way. anything, you know, really. But I love that life. story because you go from that to who you are now and look at you. You never would have uh, imagined <laughs> this path for yourself, I'm sure, you know. No, and that was. years ago or however many years ago. That would have been 11, 12 years ago, right? Yeah. So 12 years ago, nothing. First time I planted vegetables and then. And now your people yeah. come to you, right? People come and study with you. You have your own permaculture design course, all this, you know. I wanted to um, ask yeah. you, would you say that permaculture is founded upon the principles of indigenous science? You know, we know that Bill Mollison and David Hallgram, or especially Bill, that he attributes much of the of permaculture's foundations to what he learned from aboriginals in Tasmania, Australia mm -hmm. and other native peoples, you know, and I, even as we speak, I just, you think of, you know, you, you said uh, the one star revolution, I think of Taoists and animus and how we used to live all around the world globally as indigenous peoples with mother earth. So, you know, it's, it's a, it's an odd thing about permaculture that it's sort of, people may have the perception that it's something new, but it's not, it's actually something very old. Wouldn't you say? You're incredibly right. I mean, and so, it's a pool of all knowledge is what I'd like to say. It's, it, it pulls from all knowledge, but particularly all indigenous cultures. So let me just say this. We were all indigenous at one time. <laughs> we were all indigenous and we were all brought up with nature, always connected to it, looking at animals and how they did stuff to just, you know, figure out how we did it, how, you know, we were so intimately connected to mm -hmm. the forest. We didn't see it as separate from ourselves. And some people stayed that way for a much longer time. Right. And so when, when Bill started, you know, he had his experiences and David Holgram particularly, but it comes from a pool of a lot of different folks. But when they had a lot of experience with indigenous cultures in Australia and, and in New Zealand, of course, like that was a big foundation to it because these are the people that are holding right. this knowledge still, right? And right. are with nature still. But then they're also utilizing all the appropriate technologies of oh, yeah. the modern day. Yeah, so and, the integration, right, between mm -hmm, the two. Right, it's kind of like if we progressed forward with the right mindset and ethics and we also still develop technology at the same time, where would we be today? Like if, if right. you know, the in balance, in balance, right? Correct. With nature. I like to think of it as if the settlers, when they came to the, disconnected from nature for so long, which, you know, came out of the Tigris Euphrates, you know, river valley and this ex great experiment we call agriculture <laughs> that we, I believe we can all agree is sort of failed, Yeah, you know, and 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 guns, germs, and steel, you know, all right. that, the the war and and that yeah. whole mentality, religion and everything else, blossoming from that. 
those people, if they then experienced indigenous cultures and understood, wow, the, you know, and actually partnered with them and shared knowledge, right? And ethics and everything yeah. was, you know. Instead of domination, what, yeah. So, and colonization and genocide. Yeah, it could, could have, it's, yeah, to rewrite the history would be interesting. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Well, you can say well the, point, the point of it is, is that it's sort of, saying yeah permaculture is like taking all all the knowledge of the world and it's filtering it through ethics and principles right Mm -hmm. that uh, many of those ethics yes have been uh from cultures indigenous cultures that have uh, continued on for a very long time that we're lucky enough to have um have that that information from and and then it's also it is very specific it's a very specific and if you want to know what permaculture is there's a manual yeah (laughs) yeah. straight up there's if anybody wants to ask me i say there's a manual it's exactly that is permaculture um because it's one of those things where it allows you to adapt it to anywhere and to come up with your own techniques and your own styles and and you'll learn uh, uh from everything and everybody once you get the mainframe understanding uh, the design system. You know, could you, um, what would you say, how would you distinguish between permaculture, regenerative principles and restoration? You know, where did they diverge is more what I'm curious about. I say that there is no difference. Well, <laughs> it depends on who you're talking to, right? because some people believe that, you know, their definition of restoration is without humans, maybe, or, or very minimal inputs from humans, right? We come right. in and help bring it back to its just natural form and then we get out of there. Right. You know, and a lot of the restoration folks think that we don't bring in any sort of uh, non-native species into that situation mm-hmm. um, or anything like that, where or in permaculture, we're, we're looking at, you know, being active stewards and participants in the land that we're in. Mm-hmm. So that means that we can do a lot of things that maybe um, you wouldn't be able to do if you're just going into wild, you know, into spaces and then leaving them, you know, mm-hmm. you're not actually living there or occupying it. And that's where I think this is the biggest problem. Actually, it's not about, you know, that we've in, intruded too much in the forest, but that's true in one sense, but it's that I believe we haven't been there enough you know, we're, we, we're not, we should reoccupy the forests and the wild spaces to be able to restore them. And it's a very different view of many, many people out there. Yeah. I mean, I understand what you're saying as far as what, but maybe that word occupy can be a little loaded word, you know, because it sounds mm. like, yeah, it sounds like occupy is in sort of a little bit humans dominate. But I understand what you're saying. It's more about humans living back with nature and in nature fundamentally and then observing from there and integrating with nature. Yeah, correct. Yeah, totally. And, and that's an you know, important distinction to make. It's about people living in the right way in these places and basically a light touch. Yeah. But actually, again, if we're behaving in the right ways, everything we do is one of the most, I mean, humans are the most potentially beneficial elements on this planet. Um, by far, by far, if we're doing the right things, and yeah. we can also the most destructive element on this planet if we're doing yeah. the wrong things. Right, because we can consciously choose our evolution to a certain degree, right? 
can make those choices. It, it's true. I mean, it, but it, and it's also just about our our instinctual true self of what we've done since the beginning of time, which is just like any other animal. We say in permaculture, all all elements or all animals garden. You know, every element is a garden. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. So yes. I love that. They do, right? Because they mm-hmm. they have to take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. And this is sort of like this interesting idea of like capitalism where in capitalism I believe like, you know, that if you're to take care of yourself, you're, you know, you're doing the best thing, right? You take care of everybody else, <laughs> you know? Um, <laughs> that is not and then we, we say symbiotic, right? No, but follow me here. Symbiotic relationship. I actually don't believe that nature is quite symbiotic more than by, by being in benefit with each other, it is helping themselves, right? That is the most beneficial thing for us to do is help each other. But there, but that's why you see parasitic plants too. They're all really out for themselves, but they're they're working in a very and it's and this is a long term eco you know uh, yeah. evolutionary path that they've been on right for millions yeah. of years. So they have relationships yeah. that they've worked out. We have to see a bigger picture. You know, I want to um, just. Hold that thought and we will uh, take a little break. Matthew, me right back with you. If you are just tuning in, you are listening to Eco Justice Radio in KPFK Los Angeles. Co-host Carrie Kim is interviewing Matthew Trum, designer and educator from Treetop Permaculture, joining us for Permaculture Lessons from Fire, Restoring Paradise. So Matthew, I'm going to just diverge to the fires because it's one of the really primary reasons we wanted to bring you on the show, given your experience with the Paradise Fire and your restoration work. And I, you know, many listeners, of course, will recall the haunting images of the town of Paradise after campfire burned through it in November 2018. It was the most devastating wildfire in California history and burned roughly 240 square miles. And I do want to mention that, you know, the news covers fires in Anthropocene terms, in terms of dollars, human deaths, and structural losses. But we never really see the media, we have never see the media address the staggering loss of life and habitat in the natural world. And I'm wondering if you would comment about this. This is sort of evidence of our estrangement from nature that we could even make this kind of accounting during a fire or post-fire. It's unheard of, you know, it just shows that we have, don't have relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's evident. Um, we, we anthropomorphize, right. Everything um, to be human centric. Mm-hmm. And so honestly, it was one of the hopes that I had in a way that because the campfire affected so many you know, well, well off people. I mean, honestly, the town of paradise was had a lot of very wealthy folks from that had migrated there from the Bay area and, you know, were not in tune, uh, let's say with, with nature in any way, uh, didn't realize how bad it was there. A lot of retired folks, different, Mm -hmm. different era, you know, um, weren't really thinking about this. And, you know, one of my hopes was that this was one of the events that would wake that portion of our society up, which are the, you know, the, is, is sort of the, 
the portion of society that can make a lot of these things happen. Right. And, uh, and our business owners and all these things so that, you know, they, they would really get that. Yeah. We, we do not, we think of nature as this thing that's out there and it's, we go to it sometimes. We really, really understand it very much. It's just sort of doing its thing out there. And we sort of are inconvenienced by nature all the time. You know, we, we've got, we got to blow off our front patios. We got to, you know, take care of the ants that invaded your kitchen. We, you know, the tree fell, you got to call a tree guy. You know, you're always like, like nature is just really an inconvenience, you know, for people. And that's about the closest relationship they have is how do I fight back nature? Essentially. Or it's an entitlement. I would add that. Or it's an entitlement because some people have kind of an entitled view of nature that nature's here to serve them in a certain way, you know. I yeah. Development or, or, you know, just, just the way people don't really, um, there's not that reciprocal relationship for most modern human beings. Mm-hmm. You give back to the degree of what you receive. It's just, we don't really see that kind of a relationship going on for most people outside of maybe, you know, native communities or people who are really naturalists, you know, or. Mm -hmm. Well, in our communities are, you know, more connected to nature than many people, but again, seeing it as sort of like a recreational place that you go and it's like, you know, we're going to go hunting over here or we're going to go dirt biking or we're going to go, you know, take a hike. Right. But they're really not there. If does that make sense? You know, yeah, they're no, really yeah. They're not it's in like it. It's like a playground for people to a certain degree, you know. And, yeah, and that's what I mean, sort of by that entitled way as well, you know. Because yeah, you right. would never go to the forest like that. You know, they're asking permission. They're connecting to ancestors. Or I mean, I don't want to idealize all indigenous peoples, but as a a generality, you know, it's a totally different cosmological way, you know, of life. You know, I want to I want to ask you as a permaculture permaculturist, you know, what your initial response was to the fire because you were deep in it yourself, right? You were helping evacuate people, as what I understand. So, what happened for, for me was my daughter. I drove her to school. Uh, she went to in the last couple months. Is you know we're used to seeing smoke, so we don't really think a lot anymore about. Oh, there's some smoke in the distance. You know, there's a fire. Hey, another fire. Okay. Uh-huh. You know, it's far away. No need to worry. Right. Um, and by the time I came, I dropped her off. I have a place where I don't have service. By the time I came back down the hill, my phone was just blowing up. You know, they said the fires spread really quickly. It hit paradise. You know, I knew my daughter's school was like right on the edge of that ridge where uh-huh. it comes into paradise. Uh, I couldn't get a hold of her for about an hour and a half the road was blocked off so i couldn't go in there and so i found i luckily you know a friend mom's threw her in a car and Mm -hmm. got her out of there and Mm -hmm. she knew her mom and so it was able to finally hook up with them but not before you know escaping out of there with fire on both sides of the road and you know really scary situation the kids that were at the school actually got trapped in a in a bus for a period of time with fire all around them and, and barely got out. So, you know, very traumatic. So yeah, that was, that's the personal side of it for me. My daughter was involved and I had many, many friends up there 
um, that were involved. And it was, um, it was really weird. I mean, the, the thing that happened. So two weeks before this, mm-hmm. I had met John Liu right. for the first time. Technologist <laughs> and filmmaker. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. John Liu, uh, green, you know, the uh, Lois Plateau project and green gold is one of my favorites uh, that he did. And so he calls me up, you know, I wrote him a message actually online and, Cause I saw he was live chatting on this thing and I was like, oh, I'm going to hit him. You know, this guy <laughs> I looked up to, him. yeah, I looked up to him. Like I, you even never my, buddy, yeah. my friend who gave me one star revolution, he's the one who turned me on to John okay. and we watched green gold together. We used to watch uh, it all the time, like all the time. We're like, These guys, we call them the Indiana Jones restoration <laughs> calls me. And it was like, you know, I guess it was two o'clock in the morning in China. <laughs> right when he calls me and you know we end up talking for about an hour and a half and i sent him some links of some work i've been doing and, and then he asked me to join the council mm-hmm. uh, for the california ecosystem restoration camps movement i said what's that you know i never heard of ecosystem restoration camps and he explained it to me and and if people don't know um, ecosystem restoration camps how i understand or stood it in the beginning uh, and it's always evolving because right. it's it's an experiment really of you know really great experiment it's basically like a flash mob you know the way i heard it was like restoration on a large piece of land you come in there with experts resources and you know plants and and stuff and you come in there and you restore a large piece of land together and you camp together i said this is amazing what a great idea and it's um, degraded land right that's one of the key points that it's degraded land that's being restored yeah, yeah. I mean, all land really needs restoration at this point. <laughs> right. Levels of de- no, degrading. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah. But I, but the thing that rung out to me when I was, you know, right after the fire, and my friend Zach had been up in Berry Creek the year before that and had to evacuate from there, um, and we had to because he was staying at my property up there and <clears throat> evacuated down, and then. The same year, we had to evacuate from Orville because of the Orville Dam spillway event. Mm. And then, which the, the spillway here in Orville almost collapsed. I don't know if you guys remember that. But it was a huge event. 250,000 people were uh, evacuated here um, in this county, in this area. And then, and then again, with the campfire, and he came from Paradise. He moved to Paradise. A month before the fire, my, my buddy, that gave me One Star Revolution. He's my best friend, Zach. And he came from there that morning. Then his house burned down. And, and then he, I put him up in Berry Creek. The fire turned, went up to Berry. It started going up to Berry Creek. So we had to evacuate him out of there, downtown. Then the fire turned towards Oroville. Then we had to evacuate out of Oroville. Wow. So when I was leaving... Oroville that day was when the words rung out in my head. It was a video I watched of John talking about ecosystem restoration camps and his words to describe ecosystem, you know, when he's at the end, he said, let's gather around the campfire and restore paradise, Mm -hmm. meaning a campfire, you know, a regular campfire. Literally the campfire. Yeah. I mean, it couldn't be more. and, And paradise being the earth. And it was like, this lightning bolt hit me, you know, when I was a vacuum, I was so like, you know, just 
caught up in the adrenaline, you know, in the right. moment, and everything. Yes. And, and me and Zach were like, we can't fight this anymore. We can't, there's nowhere to go. Like, right. and I mean, obviously now, you know, people are understanding that more than ever, right. but there's no place to go. We have to fight this thing head on. And I said, that's it. We've got to create a restoration camp in paradise. We got to gather around the campfire and restore paradise. And I called John while I was evacuating, you know, and John um, <laughs> answered his phone. He told me later by accident. By accident. Accidentally on purpose, it turns out. Uh-huh. And so, and then uh, it turns out that, yeah. So I said, yeah, let's do, we got to do this. And John said, I'll back you up however I can. I did a GoFundMe page and I started thinking, what do we got to do? What's the first steps? And for me, the first step, is this a good segment or? or yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no yeah, we definitely want to know what happened post-fire. Okay. What, what was the restoration effort you guys engaged? Okay. So here's where we all are right now. Many, many people in California and in Nevada and Washington, Oregon, all over the earth, right? That have had fires yeah. in the recent days. We have these toxic buildings full mm -hmm. of toxic materials. We have vehicles and other outbuildings that are all laying on the property with toxic materials. So the first step, I, I said, okay, what's number one? We've got to go to those sites We've got to cap off those houses where those toxins are with something like straw wattles or straw bales or anything that can absorb those, those materials, keep them on site. Mm -hmm. And so they don't run off in the first rains. In the campfire, it was like November 8th, right? Already mm -hmm. was the fire. So we had rains within a week or so, a week and a half right. of that fire. And so it was really a desperate act. I was calling people on the phone, trying to organize this. I ended up getting put through to the resource conservation district. The only place that we were allowed in because they wouldn't let us in was in this place called Butte Creek Canyon. And uh, because there's a very special salmon habitat in the Butte Creek Canyon, there wasn't a lot of eyes on this area because paradise was such a big event. You know, the canyon was just below paradise and they didn't really have a lot of people like guarding the roads and things like that. So we figured out how to get in. We had support with the fish and wildlife and the resource conservation district hooked us up with tons of wattles. Mm -hmm. um, so we we're able to do, and I found several staging sites. So you're going to need wattles, right? This is the first thing you all, everybody's going to need. And you're going to need trucks <laughs> to move yeah. them around uh, to different places. Mm -hmm. And you're going to need, um, some staging sites, right? So several staging sites, we had a big event. So we needed, so we picked the three main areas, Concow and Yankee Hill, Paradise, and then Butte Creek Canyon. Mm -hmm. And we created these staging sites where we bring in the pallets of these wattles. Mm -hmm. And wattle, if you guys don't know, a wattle is essentially a noodle filled with straw of some sort. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it's other materials, but it's met bound together with twine or burlap or something like that and it's these long flexible noodles that you can lay out and they're used for erosion control essentially stopping organic matter and other materials from going down mm -hmm. into watersheds into the road into roads things like that so it was a two you know two for one so we figure okay we're going to go cap these houses 
you know, put it around these homes and then we're going to lay them down on, you know, on the sides of the hills to prevent erosion. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that was the first step. And we were able to do demonstration, how to use them. We led several, you know, action days where we went in and we installed them. We uh, got locals together. So many people came out to help. It was amazing. It was messy. It was, you know, we were there before and after the rains trying to do as much work as we can. The one thing, like I said, because we were so late in the game of the year, it was, we were always behind. And unfortunately, because of that, we didn't nearly get everything. And I guess the other part to be, for people to understand is that, you know, there weren't a lot of people that were concerned about this in the government. Yeah. You know, and, and we were federal, we were federally recognized. So it was a federal state of emergency, right? So we were getting federal dollars. So we had EPA, all these groups out, forestry, the California Conservation Corps was the number one group that was laying out waddles, but they weren't really going onto properties. Okay. So because it's private property and this and that, and they had so many homes, right? This is another thing. So they, the problem was they wouldn't let people in, you know, like me to do the work. And then they wouldn't, they weren't doing all that, the work that should be, should have been done. So we went into properties. We luckily we were able to find things like community newsletters and stuff. So where we had contact information to people um, that lived in the community they knew their neighbors, so they ended up finding them, and we got permission. But we had to get permission. I mean, I mean, maybe we didn't get permission. <laughs> but we were with a big group of people that all was seeing each other, and so you know, the biggest yeah. worry was van. You know, people were steal or something. You uh-huh. know, yeah, on this on these properties. But this was, I mean, most people didn't see how important this was when those toxins, heavy metals. And I oh, mean, asbestos. Burned. Yeah, I mean, yeah, paint. So, so much horrible stuff. Yeah, I can't even imagine. Even like solar panels. I mean, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I mean, Once we live as humans. Our modern construction and the kinds of things that we keep near our precious uh, families are the most toxic materials in the world. Sure. And I, it's, it's really, you know, probably one of the biggest problems of all because whether it's fire or flood or tornado or hurricane or, you know, what doesn't matter what it is, you know, we have these things just getting into our environment over and over. And guess what? That comes back around to us, you know, not that that should matter. You know, it should matter just if it gets into the animals and the ecosystem, but you know, it, it, it will persist. It's the one thing you can't get back, you know, from these fires. So that's number one priority. We'll take a short break right here, Matthew, and come back. If you are just tuning in, you are listening to Ecojustice Radio on KPFK Los Angeles. Co-host Carrie Kim is interviewing Matthew Trump, designer and educator from Treetop Permaculture, joining us for Permacultural Lessons from Fire, Restoring Paradise. Matthew, you know, I want to ask you, Toxins are one thing. And then I also want to ask you, you know, post-fire, I think many of the listeners know that Pacific Gas and Electric, you know, that they were, people would understand that the faulty transmission line was found to be one of the main causes of the, the campfire and other fires. And PG&E offered a free tree removal program 
to remove trees close in close range of power lines. I was wondering if you can talk about the controversies around tree cutting, especially the hundreds of old live trees that PG&E removed. But in general, I think some people post-fire develop this kind of perception of fear around trees. And I wonder if you could share what are the common misperceptions about trees and fire? Yeah, that's a big one. It really opens up a big conversation, but it's, I'll try to break it down a little bit simpler. <laughs> Essentially, since the the settlers came here, you know, we removed so many elements that were constantly working, benefiting the land. We're talking about, you know, reducing population of beaver from, you know, many, many millions down to a few thousand. The golden grizzly bear was, you know, killed to extinction. The great, there was over a million grazing animals, you know, in just the valley here right near us, like the Serengeti, you know, with elk and antelope and, you know, like it was insane. It was like Africa, you know, the amount of grazing animals that were around. The bird population was so much. Why they call it the Feather River here is because there was always rivers or, or feathers floating in the river. And there were so many birds, you know, there was old growth trees on my property alone in Berry Creek. I have a five foot, you know, in diameter cedar um, stump, mm-hmm. you know, that was there. We're talking about massive old growth trees. Mm-hmm. And within a short period of time, in about a hundred years, we logged all the old growth trees. We removed the beaver that was all building little dams and sinking and spreading, you know, soaking in water in the landscape, right? We slashed and burned when we logged. So we burned all the topsoil and everything by making these massive fires, big old, you know, log piles and everything, burning these huge, massive piles that made holes in the ground where they, where they burned them. And the salmon, we blocked the salmon with our dams so they couldn't go up into the high country. That's, ocean nutrients that will never come back you know like the bear used to bring the salmon into the forest you know rub it on trees the birds would bring it all around drop it you know and spread that nutrient all around the forest every time a bear went (laughs) went poop you know it dropped all this you know amazing you know ocean nutrient around the forest i mean just think about all of that and then the mining that we did and, and we literally like cleared 10 feet on both sides of every creek in the mountains around here. I mean, it was genocide in every possible way that you can think of it. And so what we did is we removed the, the charge on the battery of the forest is what we did at that point. And we've been running on the battery ever since. We never recovered back to that point. The grazers all would eat the new growth down every year in the spring so that one tree with eight sprouts on it would be reduced to maybe two and they're dropping their nutrient which then is feeding the soil biology there was over you know foot or two probably of topsoil that was in the forest think about that all sponging water all hold in with with fungi in it you know mycelium the little Mm -hmm. white strands of fungi hold 30 times the amount of water in the soil 30 times plus these old growth trees that are like these massive pumps bringing water up into their bodies in the night releasing them again in in the evening 
all the rain that came through there was absorbed and passively moved through the, the creeks and, you know, and everything until they got to the rivers. So we're talking about a whole different dynamic. You know, we came down to, we barely have one inch of topsoil anywhere in our soil, in our, in our soils right now. So we're lucky, right? <laughs> it takes a thousand years to build one inch of topsoil. Okay. That's a conservative, you know, thing. And so we've had maybe two feet. So that's, you know, My God. 20,000, 24,000 years of, of soil that was destroyed. And not to mention all the other elements that I'm, that I said, you know, that are not there anymore. And I'll tell anybody this, that animals are the most important missing element in the system. hundred percent. They all did the work for free sure. <laughs> cleaning up the forest. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, you had the local indigenous peoples in, in all most fire areas. Also then burning in the right time of the year, the forest, what they call the cool burn, you know, and, and these cool burns barely, you know, burn anything. They, they, they burn the top layer. They did it when after a little rain. So there was still some, you know, it still would burn, but very light. It cleaned the forest. It killed some of the small, weak trees and stuff. So the genetics were better. And, uh, and so this happened for, for a very long time. But why they could get away with that back then was because they had the recovery elements there. They had all of these elements, these animals, the canopy trees, the, the um, fungi, the bacteria, all these microbes in the soil Biology. there to recover that system. And we had, and, and there was a very small population of humans back then, you know? And so, you know, you were able to get away with that sort of thing back in those days because, but now, I mean, I even wonder if fire, you know, wouldn't be hurtful too in some places. Um, because of how degraded that has become. Because we don't um, have the same ecosystem situation. Exactly. So it's a, it's a very dangerous thing. And it's something that I often, you know, have a, a, a bit of, I have to have some deep conversations with people about because there's some very different, we're in a very different situation. And if I have just a tiny bit more time, Not sure. I want to tie in one very important piece to this all. So when we remove that canopy mm -hmm. of trees, this large canopy, we let the solar radiation come down much lower to the ground. And then every square inch of soil, every square inch of soil on this earth should be covered. There should never, you should never see soil. No, not must, not big soil, right? Mm -hmm, right. Right. If you see soil, that means it's a wound of the earth. It, it should be covered with living things. <laughs> and, and every time the sun hits a piece of soil, it's pooling moisture from in that soil. Mm -hmm. It's evaporating it. Right. So what we did in you know, the Middle East, what we did all, you know, all through Africa, what we did now here in California is that we removed those um, protections. And people argue that logging will help prevent forest fires well yeah if you remove all the trees of course it's going to prevent forest fires that, you know eventually but what they don't understand is by removing trees that are are in in actual forest design that's another whole thing forests aren't really forests they're actually you know they're just uh, glorified orchards right now right because they're just for harvest 
The definition of forest by the Forestry Service is not what we would think of a forest, a diverse system. It's just a monocrop, essentially. But by removing these buffers, Mm -hmm. ecosystems are, are buffers to climate energy. And when we remove these things, then the energy that's being blocked will persist. And uh, the campfire, I'll just tell you right here, is that what happened with that is that the area that is just upwind from the canyon there, before you go up into the high desert of Portola, there is a big stand of forest Mm -hmm. that has been timber harvest lands for many, many years. And it's been heavily logged in the last 20 years. Now, what that did is it pulled the evaporative winds from the high desert into the canyon, into the valley. Evaporation causes drought. It creates wind and it dries everything out. And when everything gets dried out, it creates the perfect condition for fire. And then you've got the increased wind. That's when it creates an intense fire like we've seen in paradise. There's uh, My buddy just did an overlay of the clear cuts that they do this this you know patchwork of clear cuts that was in this fire and the overlay of the fire is right on top of it and all of that mm-hmm. yeah so there is no there is no evidence in my book and everything that I know about that is going to say that logging is preventing fire but you know I I, I don't want to totally discredit there's sustainable logging, which is not anything, again, that we understand. You know, that's not what we see this right. day this day and age. Uh, All industries at one time were, were a sustainable thing. You know, we can harvest from a system that's abundant, right? It's a health, it's okay. But once we start to do it on an industrial scale, it's, you know, it's very greedy and not okay. And it's I mean, causing even, that. Mm-hmm. Well, given what you're saying with the trees and, you know, clear cutting and, and this, I mean, and knowing that also drought was a contributing factor, right, in the campfire and in other, all these fires with the, the current fires are happening now with lightning strikes. I mean, everything is like tinder. So would you, would you say that one of the most critical things we need to do is, is the soil regeneration is one of the most critical things that we need to do? It is the base level. Um, it's the fallback position for sure um, of the whole system. Everything came from those soil microbes and the system was built upon that. So a big, huge part of it is, yeah, the, the building up of it's slowing and sinking water, right, on the landscape, accumulating organic matter, diversity, mm-hmm. right, in all life. And microbe life is the foundation of all life. So, of course, that microbe life should be the most healthy. And, you know, and to do all of these things, it's really about reincorporating wildlife back into the forest again in a, in a different way that, you know, that we have. And, uh, and we, we don't have a healthy enough system to introduce that much. So we might have to use other functional species you know, grazing animals and things like that to mimic some of that at first and to transition out of eventually into, into the, you know, native wildlife. I would also argue that, you know, in many areas that it's so degraded that we also might consider functional, non-invasive pioneer species that are not necessarily natives into an area to bring in shade and cover and nurse our, our, our native plants and trees up 
because a lot of the native plants and trees actually in this climate, how degraded it is, they do not, they're not having a good time coming back because most all the trees were, were nursed under canopy. So what do you do when you don't have a canopy, right. <laughs> you know? So we've got to really look outside of the box when we're dealing with restoration. And I think the only, the only real way to do that is focus on small scale, small plots at a time that are, that are basically stewarded by appropriate people that are trained in, in restoration and, uh, and tend that land, start tending that land. Are you working with indigenous communities at all in the restoration work that you engage? I'm just wondering if you've been partnering with any native communities. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Ali Metters Knight is a uh, local Machupta leader. She's incredible. She's been doing, uh, started a whole bunch of projects out here. And we reached out to her early on, at the very beginning of this. In fact, before we even were like official a nonprofit, we had this fire summit actually down in uh, uh, Los Altos. And we brought in the leaders in in fire ecology from the native, some of the local native tribes down there and got a lot of advice from them. We brought in, yeah, several other folks to the table when we had our initial meetings locally here. And, uh, and Allie's been a great partner. She started a, a program called Tech Training, which is, stands for tra- Traditional Ecological Knowledge uh-huh. um, in this area and is looking to, you know, to, to work in, in large scale, you know, out in the forest as well. So it's all, you know, it's all in its infancy. I have had good and not so maybe easy experiences with that. It's not always, there's a lot, there's a lot of healing to be done, uh, of course, in, in those areas. And, um, and it's, a, it's about getting started and doing the dance together. You know, mm-hmm. we can't do it without each other, you know? And so I think more and more of the native communities like that I've, met and talked to are starting to like see how permaculture is actually carrying forward a lot of the you know traditional knowledge in a way that can be used now you know in in this in the world that we're in right more immediately scenario that we have right right and so you know it's a great partnership there so but you probably do bump up against some people who are kind of with the uh this non-native or, you know, bringing in other things that are not typical to the land, you know, native species to the land and so forth, that that's probably not always embraced, I would imagine. Yeah, no, for sure. And I try to basically just keep an open, open arms and, you know, say, hey, come and, come and see, you know, come and see. That's the beautiful thing about permaculture. It's all about demonstration, right? So creating demonstration sites and, and slow small solutions, which is one of the most important parts. We are constantly accepting feedback, constantly changing. Adapting. Um, yes, and adapting based on the, the feedback that we get from the system. And so, you know, and we're stewards, we're active. And that's a key piece though. It really is because a lot of people have looked at, you know, invasive, you know, native, non-native species as a huge problem because they don't tend it you know, rather than, and and I'm not saying these are, I believe are tools to help us get back to a a system that is healthier so that we can 
just do mostly native plants and all these things. But at my experience, like right. until I actually planted some of my shade trees, let's just say here, right at my, in my home, my demonstration site here, I didn't see any oaks pop up or anything. But as soon as I started bringing in shade with trees like Chinese elm and, you know, mulberries actually were a big pioneer tree for me here. All of a sudden oaks started coming up everywhere. Mm. They were there already. Right. You and this is what right. we're learning, mm -hmm. you know, is that the, you don't really have to plant right. the forest. So many seeds, right? There's so many seeds that are dormant waiting for the right yeah. conditions. And we have these wonderful, again, I can't stress it enough, helpers, our animal friends that are, you know, our squirrels are our foresters, our blue jays are our foresters. You know, they plant those seeds for us every year. They bring them in. If you create a habitat for them, they will do the work for us. If you create a habitat for the beaver, the beaver will do, do the work for us. And there's people working with beavers in a very intimate way, you know, having them place dams in specific areas through a partnership, like not a, not like an ownership relationship. So um, are you working with that, like helping um, educate people and launching projects in that direction with, you know, with working with the animals more? Because as you said, it's so essential. And, and this is not knowledge that, especially with, you know, state agencies and things like that, they're probably a pretty far afield from that well only to the extent of yeah i mean we we're do a lot of, i do a lot of talks and a lot of classes little workshops that you know i mentioned but like i said it's just about essentially creating your own little little habitat that's you know that you're always looking at nature as the guide and then and then these incredible synchronistic events start to happen because you've you can't create anything, you know, humans don't create anything. We can only orchestrate creative design. You know, we can, we can help facilitate creative events to take place, put elements together that want to play. And then they do the work for every, you know, they do all the work. Matthew, can you <laughs> let our listeners know how they can stay in contact with you and learn more about your work or engage your courses and, and what it is you're doing? Where should they reach out to you? Yeah, definitely. So honestly, Facebook is one of the best places to get a hold of me. It's at facebook.com slash TT Permaculture. It stands for Treetop Permaculture. You can just look that up, Treetop Permaculture. Um, my website's actually down right now and, and it's been so crazy. I haven't been able, but it's treetoppermaculture.org. And then the Campfire Restoration Project that I founded is a great place for information and you know different events. We just got a big grant so we're going to be doing six workshops that will also be online for anybody who wants to attend that are all about the things you do pre and post fire. And, and they're going to be really awesome. We're going to have a few small local workshops where there's going to be a couple people distanced, you know, but we're going to also do it online. And okay. so anybody can join that campfirerestorationproject.org and also encourage people to check out ecosystem restoration camps. Org. We are one of the first three ecosystem restoration camps, Camp Paradise. Woo woo. We uh, were the first in the U.S. and the first disaster response camp in the world. So um, we've created some models for you know mobile camp in in disaster response. So there's a lot of models there. What I think I can share mostly to the world is the models that I've helped create, and they're there for you guys to check out. We've got lots of videos and things you can see how we did it. And so, 
you know, that's what I hope to help share with folks is learning from my mistakes. <laughs> uh, Matthew, thanks. Thank you so much for all you shared, all your personal experiences and all that you're doing to uh, really restore the ecosystems of the world. We thank you so much. Thanks, Carrie. Glad to be on. Happy to share. Thank you to our guest today, Matthew Trum, designer and educator from Treetop Permaculture. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. This has been Permaculture Lessons from Fire, Restoring Paradise. Please connect with us on social media at EcoJustice Radio and SoCal350. If you like what you heard and you want others to be informed, subscribe to our podcast and share the episodes. You have been listening to EcoJustice Radio. A project of SoCal 350, the show can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and at ecojusticeradio.org. Created by Mark and J.P. Morris, executive producer Jack Ite, engineer Blake Lampkin, interview hosted by Carrie Kim, and original music by Javier Cadre. And until next time, remember, the power is yours.